Open your Bibles to Matthew 4, a very familiar passage to you. We'll be reading through this section, but we'll also be going to uh, various other sections of Scripture too, so you may want to just bookmark that somehow with your bulletin, because we'll be jumping around. Uh, This is a short uh, story, but uh, there's a lot more underneath it, as always, with Scripture. Uh, We don't want to be seeking for any secret knowledge, kind of like the Gnostics, but we do want to recognize that that God fills every crevice of his word uh, with his infinite wisdom. And so it's amazing how God uses short, pithy stories to to pack a lot of depth that you can keep on chewing on over and over and over again. We are people of the word, and so we keep on coming back to scripture to be fed by it over and over again. That's the beauty of short stories is often they can pack a lot of information in there and you can remember it. Uh, As a teacher, I often look for items that can be short and memorable but can pack a lot of information. And so I want to share with you some of uh, ways to describe governments and economics that you may be familiar with already um, about the two cows. You may have heard this before, but I just wanted to share it with you again. Here's a way to remember some uh, ideologies just using two cows. To remember socialism, you could have, you have two cows, the government takes one and gives it to your neighbor. Communism, you have two cows, the government takes both and gives you the milk it thinks you need. Fascism, you have two cows, the government takes both and sells you the milk. Nazism, you have two cows, the government takes both and kills you. Pacifism, you have two cows, they, they stampede you. Capitalism, you have two cows, you sell one and buy a bull. This one dates a little bit further back, but maybe some of you remember this. British government, you have two cows, they are mad. And my personal favorite... Well, actually, there's one more. Democracy, you have two cows. They outvote you two to one to ban all meat and dairy products. (laughs) And my personal favorite, Socratic Methodism. How many cows do I have? Why? That's a little philosophy joke there. Anyways, those are really pithy sayings that can pack a lot in, and maybe after the sermon, not during the sermon, You go back and think about, well, what does that mean? Why is it posed that way? You can grab it right at the beginning, but hopefully it allows you to chew on it longer afterwards. Well, that's a lot of what happens here in Matthew. So we're going to get right into the text and then uh, talk about what it's doing here. So in chapter 4, we're going to read 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's a wonderful passage uh, that tells us God's in control. He's the true son of God, and he can resist Satan and his temptations. Often, many times, uh, this passage is preached of, this is how you too can resist temptation. As we see right off, the way Jesus resists temptations is by going to Scripture. And that's a wonderful tool for us to do as well. But like the rest of the Bible, it's not just a self-help book of this is how you can navigate. As we always want to reflect on what Jesus is doing, it's not just what would Jesus do, but we should always remember what has Jesus done. And so that's what we want to focus on today is what was Jesus actually doing here in resisting these temptations? Because in a cursory reading of it, as believers, we'd say, that doesn't seem that tempting to Jesus, right? He can, he can turn away from making stones into bread. That's not that hard. Why would he worship Satan? You know, why is he going to throw himself off? That doesn't seem like much of an appeal to him. Well, we're going to dive into that because there's, there is a lot going on here. And the first thing I just want to draw your attention to is the temptations are recorded in three of the Gospels. And they're all slightly different. In the beginning of Mark, we'll look there briefly, it's only two verses. It's just a summary of what happened. And then if you look in Luke, it reverses the last two. Again, all for reasons that they're trying to accomplish in their Gospels. So that's important to notice. Another point is just the timing of the temptations. Here, if you've uh, been going through Matthew before, you can see that this temptation comes right after his baptism. And so here he is, there's a baptism, and then after that, he's sent into the wilderness aspect, and then right after the temptation, there's a kingdom aspect. He goes forth, he begins preaching, and begins gathering his disciples. And so right in the middle of that is where these temptations come. And it seems to be done on purpose here. And a way that we're going to analyze uh, these temptations is how First uh, John reveals it to us that, in general, the world is tempted. And so if you just open up to First John uh, really quickly, First John 1, verse 16, another very familiar passage. says this, we'll actually start in 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It gives us a little framework of how um, Satan and the world tempts us away from God. There's the uh, lust of the flesh, 
the desire of the eyes and the pride of life. Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's not only just resisting Satan, he's also proving that he's the one true son. He's the one true son. Because all the other sons that have come before him have failed the temptations. And therefore, they've revoked what God has given them. And that's why we still needed a Savior. Because the sons that came before didn't live up to that designation. And so what we'll see is the way that he, Jesus, answers being the true son. Because before him, all these other sons have failed. So what we're going to look at first is the most immediate connection, which is, how Israel failed as the true son. So what we're going to do is look at the setting of this. First, I want to draw your attention to the parallels that come out with Israel. Here, as you see, as I mentioned already, Jesus is fasting in the wilderness, and then he is swept away to be tempted. Well, obviously, this should recall it to our mind another wilderness, wilderness journey, which is the story of Israel. They're called out of slavery, and they're brought into the wilderness. And Deuteronomy, as you noticed, and as uh, was already given in the uh, church service, Deuteronomy 6, the whole lot of Deuteronomy is Moses talking to Israel and reminding them of what God has done for them and to them in the wilderness as they prepare to enter the land. Well, if you look at that, all of Exodus is their journey forward. So just like Jesus, they're in the wilderness. So Jesus enters back into the wilderness to show, I'm the Son of God. Here's the Son of God that was coming out of the wilderness, and I'm going to be the true Son. Another parallel that comes is baptism. Jesus, of course, as I already mentioned here at uh, Matthew 3.13, he's just coming out of baptism. All right, again, that's a whole other sermon that you could preach is why does Jesus have to be baptized? You probably wrestled with that yourself. Here he is. He hasn't sinned. Baptism is supposed to be signifying a repentance and a believing. Jesus is telling John, no, I need to be baptized, so baptize me. And so he gets baptized, and then, again, is taken into the wilderness. Well, Israel also had to go a baptism. And you find that baptism in Joshua 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there, but as you know the story, Moses isn't allowed to enter the promised land. And when they come up to the Jordan, they don't know how they're going to cross it at that time. The Jordan's actually a very small river, but at that time it had overflooded its banks, and they're standing on the brink, again like an Exodus event. And God makes the water stop, and they pass through the waters. Well, in the midst of that, they're erecting these stones to remember that event, and the priests are in the middle of the river, and they stay there as the whole body passes through. If you recall, that's about 3.5 million people that are passing through the river. And the priests are there and sanctifying them as they're entering the land. Jesus is baptized, 
Israel is baptized as well in the same event. They're going into the land to establish their kingdom. Well, again, as mentioned earlier, you see Jesus here right after he's baptized. He goes to temptation and then he goes to establish the kingdom on earth. If you look just a couple of verses over in Matthew 4, verse 17, right after the temptation, he goes forth and he says, For from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's going forth to establish his kingdom now, after this. Well, as Israel was going through the wilderness and passed through baptism, they're going into the land to set up the kingdom that was promised to them. Joshua 6 records that, and the rest of Joshua, they're entering their land, they're claiming the boundary, and they're saying, this is the land that was promised to us. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. What's remarkable about this, too, is that here we see, before Jesus even enters the temptation, in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 17, he's declared the Son of God, my beloved. You can see that. It says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He's declared the Son of God, and then he enters into temptation. Well, the same thing goes with Israel. Here, going back to Exodus, and you can turn there really quickly, if you'd like, Exodus 44. Uh, sorry, Exodus 4, 22. This is Moses when he's going to set the people free on their journey in the wilderness. And he says this. The Lord says to him, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. So he's making a declaration to Israel that Here's my son. I want him to be freed to serve me. And they immediately go into the wilderness. And that's where we see them be tempted. How does Israel do with the temptations in the wilderness? Not great. Not great. Right? They hear the word of God come from the mountain. They respond to it and say, yes, we'll do everything that you say. We'll live up to the law. And then immediately, they don't. All right? And this is the way they're tempted. They're tempted in the same way that First John tells us. They're tempted with the lust of the flesh. In Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, we're already told what God told them as they enter the land. He said, You'll find all these cities that are already built, all these vineyards that were already made for you. They'll be full of good things that you did not fill. You don't need to worry about any provisions. I've got this. Does that sound familiar to the gospel? I, I've got everything for you. All you need to do is just follow my voice, and I'll lead you into that land where everything is going to be set for you. Again, he says in Deuteronomy 8, 9, there's going to be a land of bread with no scarcity. I'm going to lead you to a land where there's bread everywhere. Essentially, you don't have to work for the bread that is there. Numbers 14.9, 
And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. You shall consume all the peoples. That's an interesting promise. He actually describes the enemies as the bread that they're going to feast on. So here is the path, right? Follow my word. I'll lead you to the land, and you'll have everything. Don't worry about the provisions. I will make them happen for you. But of course, the Israelites failed in that, right? Don't need to go there, but in in Numbers 11, that's where you see the whole account of them just complaining and complaining and complaining. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's get some food. Why don't we have any food? And God provides manna. And he provides quail. Immediately after they get the instructions about it, they fail even in how to gather it. They think it's going to disappear, so they hoard it. And then it begins to mold and rot. They were supposed to be the son of God for the people of the earth to bring the light. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust in his word. They said, we're out here. We're going to starve to death. We don't believe you. The lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes is some form of uh, wanting forbidden glory, taking glory for yourself. Again, they were told in Deuteronomy 6, as we read, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. There's going to be shiny things out there. Don't go for them. The historians and archaeologists have discovered that when they actually entered the land and they failed to clear it all out, uh, there were a group of people that were living in the land called the Phoenicians. Well, the Phoenicians were the most advanced society of that time. You know, that's where we get our alphabet. That's where they had all kinds of luxuries and items. You have the Hebrews who just came through the wilderness. They've been slaves forever. They're uncultured. They're not refined. They're the bottom of the ladder. And they're set right next to these technologically advanced people. Don't intermarry with them. Don't join in with them. They look at the shiny gold and say, we want that. Now remember, all you have to reflect on is Exodus When they left, Egypt gave them all their gold, right? Did God provide shiny things for them already? Yes. And he said, I'm going to provide for you again when you get in the land. And they go, I don't think so. If I don't see it in my time. As we know, they failed in that. They, uh, there was, uh, of course, the golden calf. We'll take all that gold you gave us and we'll build a calf for it. And as Exodus tells us, they said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. They were tempted by the lust of the eyes. We need something to see, Lord, because we don't see you. Even though they had all the gifts from God, they still say, we don't really see you here. So we're going to try to get it ourselves. And they fail. Again, the pride of life. Pride of life is really our desire 
to have some kind of immortality or to become like God and in our own authority. Deuteronomy again tells them this. You don't have to worry about immortality because look at the promises I give you. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell for 40 years. They were walking around in the wilderness and none of their clothing fell apart. doesn't speak highly of American products that don't last many years. They are out in heat and dry and exposed to the weather. Their clothing didn't fail them for 40 years. Their feet didn't swell. They're marching all the time. I mean, just imagine setting up camp. They said, you know, it would be miles long because you've got 3.5 million people that have to set up camp every time they move. You're setting up camp. You're sweating. You're doing all that. And then you're moving. God sustained not only their lives with all of that, he sustained even the clothing that they were wearing. Right? When we look back at it, it seems really ridiculous to say, where are you, God? He's sustaining them through all of that. Not just their bodies, but even what's on their bodies is being sustained. And of course, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. That is the charge that he's giving them. Look, you're going to prosper if you just follow me. But again, they fail, and they're complaining. Of course, you can think of Korah's rebellion. This is what happened in Numbers. The people come to Moses, and they say, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Who appointed you to lead us? We're just as holy as you are, Moses. We don't like the way that you're leading. And so they lead a rebellion. Of course, we know God brought judgment on them, opened up the earth and swallowed them. Right? You'd think you'd only need to see that once to realize that God's real and his judgment is real. But we need to see it many times. All right? So we see that Israel is brought out so many parallels with what Jesus is going through, even in these temptations, and they fail all of them. They, they lust after the flesh, they lust after their eyes, and the pride of life, and they fall. The Son of God that was appointed to be the anointed ones to give the glory to the world fails. We still need a Savior from that. But there's even more going on in this passage because it doesn't just parallel Israel... It also parallels another son of God, Adam. So we're going to take a look at how it parallels Adam as well. Well, of course, a big distinction here is that Jesus is in the wilderness. He's fasting. He's not in paradise. He's with wild animals, as Mark tells us. And they're subservient to him. There's also angels that are ministering to him at this time. What's really interesting is there's so many parallels, we don't have time to explore them all, but just a little side note is even the language in Mark that says, and the Spirit cast him out into the wilderness, is actually the same Greek term that is used for Adam being cast out of Eden. It's very interesting that they use those parallel terms there. Adam, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. Adam's in 
paradise feasting, whereas Jesus was in the wilderness fasting. He's with animals that are already tame, but the result of his uh, disobedience, they became wild. And the angels, instead of ministering to them, now stand at the gate to bar him from coming in. It's very interesting how the Lord sets this up. Even baptism. Uh, Jesus, again, is baptized with water. Later on in 1 John, it says he came by water and blood. Again, baptism is a show of a declaration of God's mercy on my life. When you look at Adam, he didn't go through any baptism, except for we know that God sacrificed an animal and then clothed him with the animal skins. So as Adam's walking around, he has a testimony of God's mercy upon his life because he's literally wearing the death of another, the death of a substitute for him. And so he has this baptism too, establishing the kingdom. We've already seen Jesus, after the temptation, go and establish his kingdom. When Adam fails, now he has to go forth, and the Bible specifically says, now you need to go back to the land I took you from and work it. So if you remember in Genesis, he creates Adam here, and it says he made a garden of Eden, and he put him in the garden. It follows the whole motif of the Genesis account where God creates something and then he fills it. So he creates Adam somewhere, and then he puts them in the garden. Now, because he failed, he takes them out of the garden and says, now you have to go do work out here. It's a very interesting contrast to what Jesus is doing. Right? Jesus is in the wilderness where Adam was put, and now he's creating his own kingdom that will never end at the same time. And they're both declared sons of God. Jesus declared sons of God here if you look at uh, the Luke account, you can flip there so you don't have to trust my word, but you can trust the scripture. Luke 3, 38. In Luke's account, he's going through and giving the genealogies of Jesus, and he says this in 338. In the whole list, he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam is being declared the son of God. But again, we see he fails. Right? So here's Israel, who's religiously the chosen ones who are supposed to represent God on earth. Here's Adam, who is supposed to represent all of humanity, fail as well. And we see that, of course, in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. I think you're pretty familiar with that, so we don't have to turn there, but the lust of the flesh obviously hits them right away. It says in Genesis 3, 6, the tree was good for food. There was a desire to eat from the tree to satisfy their own provisions. Were they in want, though? They weren't in want. They were in paradise. They were still lured away by the lust of the flesh because they felt there was something that they were not getting, something that they had to go and take for themselves. And so Adam and Eve went and took to satisfy what they didn't think God was going to provide for them. The lust of the eyes. They're told in Genesis 2 that 
the tree was pleasant. They had gold and onyx and all of that that's described in Genesis 2 all around them. So it's not just this amazing garden, but they actually have all these jewels that are set before them. There's nothing that they should have to desire beyond that. And yet we see they also fail because they see that the fruit is a delight to the eyes. There's something that is beautiful that I don't have in my possession, and God's not going to give it to me, so I'm going to go take it. They go and do that. And of course, the consequence is, at that point, they knew they were naked. They all of a sudden became aware of their lack instead of aware of their abundance. I think there could be a whole sermon on that just for our American culture. right? How often do we focus on what we don't have and forget all that we've been given? They literally have everything, but they're focused now on, I'm not clothed anymore. And of course, the pride of life. They're told to have dominion over the earth and to rule over them, but they fail because they believe this tree is going to give them this dominion of knowing good and evil, that they'll become like God in that. And of course, they fail and they're kicked out, and it specifically says in Genesis 3.22, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That's why they are kicked out. Because they went and grasped things that God already said, I'm going to give you. I'm giving you my word. And you don't think that's enough. That's not a good representation to be the son of God and believe that you need more than what he's given you. This brings us to one more parallel that's very interesting. So we've seen Israel representing the religiously chosen to represent. We've seen Adam representing all of humanity. Then you have this other character in the Bible that's also called the Son of God in the Old Testament. If you go through and do a study of Son of God in the Old Testament, one object keeps on coming up, and those are fallen angels, are referred to as sons of God. And so it's really interesting that Satan is numbered among them as a son of God. You can see that in Job... 1 and Job 2, when they are brought before God, said the sons of God assembled and Satan was with them to come before Job. That's a scary thought to believe that they're sons of God, right? Obviously, it doesn't mean relationally. They're broken away from God relationally. But they were created even before Adam. And so they were the first created before him. If we look at the parallels again with wilderness, where they came from before this temptation is Jesus descended from heaven. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. We see Satan also descended from heaven. <clears throat> How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn, from Isaiah. And even Jesus says it as well in Luke. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They're both coming from the same place, from heaven originally. Baptism. Jesus again is baptized. But what's interesting is what John says in 3.11. I mean, sorry, Matthew says in 3.11. If you look at that really quickly, if you kept your finger in there. 
It says this, I baptize you with the water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We don't often quote the rest of that because we just go, oh, Jesus is going to baptize too. Yeah, with the Holy Spirit and fire. Many commentators take that to be judgment, not just Pentecost with the tongues of fire, but actual judgment. Jesus is bringing judgment as well. What we see, Satan is actually baptized in fire because he's eventually thrown into the lake of fire as well in Revelation. And establishing the kingdom, of course, Jesus establishes the kingdom, but again, 1 John tells us a hint of why Jesus came. In 3.8, it says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now think about that. If John is saying that's one of the purposes that Jesus came for, you see, before his ministry even starts, he's put into the desert by himself to have an encounter with Satan. To take him on one on one. To prove that Satan has no power over Christ. Christ is here to actually destroy everything that Satan is trying to do. And he does it in the temptations, right? Eventually, at the cross and the resurrection, Satan is ultimately defeated. But even here, Jesus is revealing you being called the Son of God as a demon. I trump any power that you have. And we'll look at that here. Okay, he's called the Son of God. There's all these temptations that uh, the Lord is put through. But we see that Satan has fallen, every one of them. We don't have time right now to get into it, but I'd encourage you to look into Ezekiel 28, which is the passage that reveals a lot about uh, who Satan is. There's two passages really in the Old Testament about Satan and his fall, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Both of those recount the same thing. They're both talking about a human king. One's a king of Babylon, one's a king of Tyre. They both have this privileged position, and then through their sin, they get thrown down. And most commentators look at that, and they see, yes, there's sections talking about the human, but there's also sections talking about something that must be more than just the king, because it alludes to the language. So, for instance, Ezekiel 28 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You had everything, but of course he failed, right? He desired to trump God, to lust after the flesh and take what was not his. I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. Again, the lust of the eyes, wanting something forbidden. Ezekiel 28 says, You are an an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You are in this privileged position. But then he failed, as Isaiah tells us. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. He wants to go above where God had put him. And again, the pride of life. He's told, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. But again, he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Notice that Satan's desires and his failed attempts are the exact same way that he tempts Israel. He tempts Adam. 
He tempts Jesus. He wants them to claim what God has not given them. He wants them to claim to be like God, to desire after that under their own effort. He failed in that, and so he wants all of them to fail, and they all do, like dominoes. As he presents it before them, Israel fails, Adam fails, and then we get to Jesus. He doesn't. Jesus redeems that whole track record of sons of God failing to listen to the voice of God. That is why we see him only quote scripture. He's sustained by scripture. He's not coming up with a rational argument to wait to uh, fight off Satan. He's just going right back to what God said. Satan tempts Jesus with the lust of the flesh. He says, why don't you make bread without sweat? That was the curse that Adam gave, right? That came to Adam. It was like, you have to make bread now from the sweat of your brow in Genesis 3. And Jesus tells him, no, right? If you look back there, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying that God will sustain me in all things. I don't need to go and prove that I'm the son of God by creating it. Power is not the definition here. Humility is. I'm humbling myself before God. Therefore, I'm the true son of God. That's all it is, is I'm the one who's submissive to God. It's not my power that's going to make me the one, the chosen one. It's my humility in service to him. Again, he is tempted with the lust of the eyes, right? If you see in verse 8 through 10, he's told uh, here, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. In, in Luke, it describes it even more. I've been given all this authority so I can give it to you. And Jesus, of course, replies, Be gone, Satan. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I don't need the glory that you're offering because God has already promised me glory in his due time. I'm the true son because I listen to his word. And notice he claims his authority over Satan by saying, you be gone. He's the one in control because he listens to God. And of course, the pride of life comes again with the earlier temptation in Matthew, which is up on the pinnacle. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And he quotes from Psalm. What's really interesting is that he quotes it accurately but he stops short of what the rest of Psalm actually says. If you keep on reading in Psalm, he quotes 11 and 12. The next verse says this. To the people of God that follow and trust in God, it says, You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. It's interesting that Satan leaves that out. Because in his mind, he knows Genesis 3.15, which is the, the true son, the one that will come, that will redeem things, is going to crush the serpent. 
And here's the serpent and the lion that's prowling around to seeking who he may devour out in the wilderness. And he's quoting from Psalm 91, and he cuts off the part where the serpents and the lions will not harm you. And Jesus comes back to Scripture and says, again, you shall not put the Lord God to the test because I'm going to crush you. Do you really want to know how this ends? I'm crushing the serpent. So I don't need to do it right now because it's already been promised. He rests in those promises. Well, really quickly in the final minutes here, I just want to tell us that, of course, I'm not negating the strongest connection here, which is those that trust in Christ are declared by Christ sons of God. So you as believers are already declared sons of God. And the whole beauty of that is God was able to do what Israel could not. Christ was able to do what Adam could not. Christ was able to do what Satan certainly did not. And in defeating all of those, he unraveled all the misery that they brought. Nobody else now has to prove that they're a son of God because the real son of God has come. But notice how Satan tempts us. The one temptation that he always puts before us as believers is, if you're a son of God, then. Well, if you're a son of God, then your drive into church this morning shouldn't have had any yelling in it, which none of ours did. <clears throat> if you're the true son of God, then you shouldn't be you know, having those kind of thoughts into your head. If you're the true son of God, why don't you prove it? Why don't you, you know, go do something miraculous so that we can know for sure that you belong to the family of God? It's the devil's if that he puts in your mind. The beauty is we don't have to follow Christ's example and say, all right, what did Jesus do so I can follow the same procedure so I can fight off these temptations? All we have to do is, Jesus already defeated you. It's already written. What we get to point to now is, this was written. Matthew 4 was written. So we can quote back, it's written. The true Son of God has come. I don't need to prove that I'm a Son of God. Jesus declares me the Son of God. I don't self-identify as a Christian. Christ identifies me as a Christian. That's a huge difference. Because if it's just me making that up, then my doubt comes. And so, just listen to the words of Galatians. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When we enter times of wilderness, we don't have to ask, why am I here? Did Christ ever sin? Is that why he was cast into the wilderness? No. The people in Ukraine, as they're seeing the Russian tanks roll in, and the faithful believers are looking out the window going, why God? Why is this coming? What have we done to bring this on? We can trust 
we're not brought to those situations just because of our sin. We're brought to those situations to trust in God. Deuteronomy actually tells us in chapter 8 where he quotes from is, God brought you into the wilderness so that he could test your hearts. He didn't bring you into the wilderness to change your circumstance. He just wants to see where is your heart. And as we see here, if our heart in faith is in Christ, then we get to claim everything that that son of God did and inherited it. That's an amazing truth. So there's so many levels to this where the temptation of God isn't just a roadmap for us, but it's a proof to us that we can rest in that sonship to secure our own sonship. 